Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I wanted to learn about connections, connections between emerging markets and the energy sector. And here to help us is Damien Sassauer. He's our fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Damien, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with me. Can you explain what what exactly are we trying to understand here? The, the, a connection that I didn't really I didn't realize existed. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, emerging markets, especially uh, the debt issued by emerging market oil and gas companies, tends to be more tightly correlated to the uh, sovereign parent countries in which they're located, right? And so one would think it's an oil company, it produces oil, and so its business, its emerging, you know, it's it's it the spreads for its uh, for its debt should be more correlated to the price of oil, but that's just not the case. What what give us an example? I mean, what are you talking about, Brazil? So Brazil, actually, Brazil is an interesting case because um, you know, Petro uh, Petrobras is basically owned by the the, the Brazilian government. Isn't it, it? Yeah, about sixty percent. So you would think that it would, um, but nevertheless, it produces oil. I mean, it's got upstream and downstream businesses, but Petrobras, for the most part, um, and has historically had a very tight correlation to the price of oil, but. Um, you know, it's cor- the, the the correlation between Petrobras bond spreads and that of its uh, of Brazil itself are just, I mean, they're upwards of eighty percent, close to ninety percent. Although that's been declining of late, um, in lieu of all the political instability that's going on on the ground, right? So I think what's happening is you might have creditors a little bit more desensitized to the political turmoil surrounding Michel Temer and... They're just exhausted by it because that goes back to the previous administration and then the previous, previous administration (laughs) in Brazil. And also there was was a big corruption scandal uh, at Petrobras. That's, That's correct. So, I mean... As opposed to perhaps what's going on in Mexico, right? I mean, what's interesting about uh, Pemex, which is the large, and that is, you know, state-owned yeah, m- uh, uh, oil company in Mexico, exactly. The spreads of Mexico, uh, of, of quite frankly, of Pemex, are more tightly correlated to that of Mexico. And Mexico, given what's been going on with NAFTA renegotiations and um, trade linkages to the U.S., what you're finding is that. Uh, Pemex bond spreads are more tightly correlated to U.S. financial conditions, so U.S. money markets, right? The, sh- the front end of the yield curve. So, you know, with um, with all that's going on here, with um, the removal of quant, e- uh, quant easing and and perhaps you know quant tightening going forward, and uh, you, you're just finding that Pemex spreads are more trackly or are more closely tracking that of the U.S. than of of its sovereign parent. Is is do we need to note that this is also because the companies, these oil and energy companies, they are so closely linked to the governments of these emerging economies, like Mexico, like Brazil. I mean, it's not as if these are what we would consider to be private shareholder-owned companies. Well, 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 I mean, that's a great point. I mean, Petrobras and Pemex are definitely quasi-sovereign entities that are, you know, 
They're not going to do anything that the that central government, that the government doesn't want them to do. But I can I can direct your attention to a company um, in Russia by the name of Luck Oil, right? And Luck Oil is not owned by the government, and yet it spreads track that of the Russian uh, sovereign upwards of ninety percent. So it's not as if it's a public-private, quasi-sovereign, corporate you know issue here. What you're finding is that emerging market companies. That the, that the embedded sovereign risk in their bond spreads, it just outweighs the fundamentals. And we've seen that, right? Fundamentals, you know, for the most part, I, I don't want to say they don't matter anymore, but we've been in this one-way street, this one-way environment for EM debt. And so, you know, you're finding that they're tracking uh, sovereign bond spreads pretty closely. All right, I'm going to push back with you on, on, on Russia because you mentioned Lukoil. Okay, very good. It is a private company. It is not run by the government, but it happens to be in Russia. And my, I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, a Forgive me, but I think that Vladimir Putin casts a very wide <laughs> shadow over every aspect of the Russian economy. So it's not like Luke Oil is going to do something that the Russian that's, energy ministry doesn't like. Nah, that's absolutely true. But 80% of its revenue is coming from abroad, right? It's not Gazprom. So look, what we have is, you know... Um, you but know, you make a good point. I mean, this is that the political context is crucial when you're looking at emerging market debt. And that's and that's the point here. I mean, you just can't ignore the sovereign risk. I mean, anybody who's going to do a deep dive and do a fundamental bottom-up analysis on any EM issuer, you just can't ignore the political risk that's embedded within bond spreads. Well, I was going to say, next we should go to Venezuela, right? <laughs> PDVSA. Well, PDVSA is an interesting one, right? I mean, now that we've seen, you know, the you know all the talk about, you know, the U.S. upping sanctions and and everything that's going on on the ground there. I mean, it's a real crisis. And so what you've seen there is you've seen credit default swap spreads blow out. And what that's done is it's increased the uh, implied probability of default from something like 55% to upwards of 72% over the last month. That's a huge move. And in so doing- um, And someone's made a lot of money on this, right? Because someone has bet that, I mean, obviously someone bought the credit default swaps when they were low and people thought there wasn't gonna be a problem. And this is like, you're, you're hoping that you're gonna get into an, an automobile accident and then you, you benefit because the premium skyrockets. Well, well, just from, but that's true if you're, if you're kind of playing if you're a trader mentality and you're playing the CDS spreads, but if you're a cash bond holder in Pedavesa, right, and you're a long-term investor, you know, what you're seeing is people have kind of been playing the front end because, you know, every time there's, you know, they're going to default, they're going to default, they don't default. And so the bonds pay out and, and they and they mature and they redeem and you get 100%, 100 cents on the dollar. But all those short end bonds, especially the ones that are coming due toward the end of the year that are trading at 70, 80, 90 cents on the dollar, they've come down quite a bit and people are moving further out along the curve simply because your risk of loss is less. Think about it. If you're paying 80 cents for a, a, a Pettivesa bond and it defaults, you lose 80 cents. But if you're paying 35 cents for the 2027s or the 2034s, your risk of loss is that much less. So you're seeing you know, long-term investors moving out along the curve and that's what's going on with Pettivesa. That's, that's interesting because I mean that really highlights how people are reacting to try to reduce their risk, but at the same time, they're looking for more yield. Yeah, yeah. And Pedavisa, actually, I just ran the numbers. It's actually the only uh, oil and gas issuer uh, in EM hard currency land that is actually down on the year. But if you look at it over, I mean, my goodness, if you look at it over the last two years, you know, I think it's up, you know, 70, you know, 80%, you know, so you can't ignore Pedavisa if you're kind of a closet beta chaser, an index tracker, if you will, you know, you have to have it in the portfolio. It's just where do you want to put your points on the curve? Thanks very much for explaining this. Very interesting. Thanks, oh, as always. Damien Sassauer, he is our fixed income strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us some detail about emerging market debt and the connection between the uh, oil companies in those countries and uh, the value of their debt. 
All right, we want to turn our attention now to the hospitality industry in as much as Marriott has released its results, and also we'll be getting a preview of Priceline. I want to bring in Dan Wasliak. He is the senior equity analyst at Morningstar. And Dan, let's begin with Marriott, because yesterday they said they've putting together this partnership with Alibaba Group in China because, of course, they want to tap into the growing market for tourism and travel uh, amongst Chinese uh, individuals. Can, can you speak to what you learned from Marriott's report today? Yeah, you know, I guess with Alibaba, we didn't find that too surprising. I think it makes sense for Marriott, and in the future, I expect other hotel uh, operators to join a platform like Alibaba, given that they have 500 million active monthly users. That's a platform that you're going to want shelf space on, especially, you know, given China is a growing outbound travel market. So this is something that is should help Marriott's long-term growth opportunity in China, where currently about 8% of their total rooms uh, are from that region. Um, But beyond that, what we learned out of the quarter was that their brand continues to be very strong. And also the U.S. corporate business spend seems to be pausing a little bit, and that's uh, kind of been echoed by some other competitors uh, in the hotel space over the last week or two. All right, we'll get to the bigger bigger issue in just a second. I want to ask you about uh, Marriott and Starwood. How is the uh, that pro that you know combination coming along because didn't they say that they want to cut what 250 million in in, uh, in dollars from the company's uh, budget right yeah so it, everything appears on track you know they they acquired starwood back in september of last year is a good acquisition and that marriott was more focused on uh, us and starwood had more of an international exposure so that was a nice marriage uh, from that vantage point but yeah everything appears on track as far as the synergies that they expect to strip out of the Starwood um, integration. Um, the $250 million in cost savings, they remain on track to, to have that annualized sometime uh, next year. Dan, it's this, con- this is considered an asset light strategy. Is that correct? Right, right. And maybe explain how does that work and why is that of benefit, particularly when it comes to margins? Yeah, so um, you know, so they don't own a lot of their own hotels. They depend on third parties to really join the platform, and therefore they don't have a lot of development capital uh, intensity costs. The really that that's all um, uh, forwarded by the third parties that are joining Marriott. And the reason they're joining Marriott is because Marriott has a leading loyalty program. They have strong brands, and they also have a good uh, website of traffic. Um, so those are the things that uh, a third party will look to when they're looking for example, to franchise under one of the larger brands. And also, Marriott doesn't have to pay for any of the marketing costs. All that is, is again, paid for by these third parties. So the margins are very high versus if you own the hotels, those costs are going to be associated with that. Because those franchise fees, as well as the incentive fees, they continue to increase the revenue at Marriott and doesn't cost them any more money. Uh, right. Yeah, that's that's essentially correct, right? So there's a lot of uh, a lot of leverage here um, as as they continue to sign up uh, and get unit growth. The costs are very low, and they, and they get a percentage of the revenue that's generated by these franchisees. Is this the uh, the, the model that you think most uh, hospitality hotel groups should follow? I do, but you know it's also a matter of scale. So when you're a smaller hoteler, you really have to kind of invest your own capital behind the brands in order to get them to a point where 
third parties can gain confidence in, in the brand development. Um, so you look at a company like Hyatt, for example, that is, uh, has more of an owned exposure. They're starting to get to the point now where they're approaching 200,000 total rooms, where I think they're starting to realize that third parties now believe in the, in the brands that they've put their own, ca- uh, where Hyatt's put their own capital behind. So it's kind of a, an evolution that a company gets into where it becomes more asset light as, as it builds a certain scale. Now, Priceline is set to release its results after the close of trading uh, today. Uh, the shares of Priceline are up nearly 40% yeah. so far this year. $2,043. Stock is up uh, $1.23 right now. What do you expect to hear from Priceline? Well, first of all, our long-held view is that Priceline is the best-positioned company within online travel. Um, you know, the question now is, is it the best stock? We think that it's actually near fair value. Our fair value is $2,030, essentially, where the stock is trading right now. But, you know, as far as the report, we expect it to be solid. Um, Expedia reported their results two weeks ago. They saw a pretty solid macro environment globally. Um, Expedia's room nights also saw some acceleration uh, versus the prior quarter. And then even though there's been some mention of uh, U.S. corporate pause with the hotelers. Uh, they also point out that the leisure market, which is more of uh, Priceline's um, um, forte, that the leisure market is, is quite strong. So we think that the quarter probably is going to be quite, uh, quite solid for Priceline. Can you speak about uh, this idea of you know, the competition from Airbnb, so vacation rentals? How does that uh, play into Priceline's strategy? Yeah, vacation rentals is is a, a growing market within online travel, and one of the reasons why we like Priceline is because Priceline actually has a really strong vacation rental pl- um, platform. So. Priceline has about 1.2 million properties and 25 million rooms on Booking.com. Um, and of those 25 million rooms, about 8 million or so are vacation rentals or alternative accommodations, which would compare with Airbnb, which probably you know has around 3 or 4 million um, rooms itself on its platform. So Priceline actually has a very competitive offer to Air, uh, Airbnb. And we think that of the total bookings, vacation rentals probably represent a low double digit of uh, Priceline's total bookings. And you think that uh, with at fair value, what is the alternative? If you don't like the price of Priceline, what should you do? Well, uh, TripAdvisor, uh, you know, I think trip, the market is greatly probably discounting TripAdvisor that also has a pretty uh, good platform. Uh, there's a lot of traffic that goes to TripAdvisor. Uh, right. TripAdvisor has a lot of content. Um, you know, and they'll they, be renouncing their results uh, at the close of trading uh, today as they well. They will be, yes. Yeah. So. Thanks very much. Uh, Dan yep. uh, Wasilek, he is a senior equity analyst at Morningstar, talking about the hospitality industry. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. 
Well, what are the characteristics that a money manager looks for in an investment? Here to tell us is David Kudla. He is the chief executive and the chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital Management, helping to manage more than $2 billion based in Grand Blanc, Michigan. And he can be followed on Twitter at David underscore Kudla. That's K-U-D-L-A. All right, uh, David underscore Kudla. Uh, what are the characteristics? What are you looking for in an investment right now? Right now, we're looking for investments that can do well in a slow growth economy. And those are the sectors that are more dependent on secular a secular growth story than they are the economy and cyclical forces. The economy is doing okay, but it's really just sputtering along at about 2% GDP growth. So we've seen value stocks have really suffered this year. Growth stocks have done very well, namely technology. Are you going to stick with that or is it time to rebalance? We're going to stick with technology, and we're going to stick with big cap technology. Uh, we, we are in the ninth year of a bull market, and there will be a point where uh, this market finally cracks after the, the over eight years of the second longest bull, bull market in the history of U.S. stocks, uh, where we'll see uh, a problem with a, a flat or down market. And all stocks will suffer at that time. Until that time, when we look at where do we want to be in this market right now, past six months and right now, uh, it's still with technology and even healthcare that tends to be economically insensitive. Well, David, how do you how do you know when to get out? I mean, the Nasdaq is up nearly twenty percent this year. The S and P five hundred is higher by more than eleven percent. You know, no one's going to ring a bell for you when you you know when it's time. But uh, how do you avoid that downturn, or how do you mitigate the effects? Yeah, there, no one's going to ring a bell. Although there are some people acting like they're ringing bells uh, at Oakmark Capital, uh, Jeffrey Gunlock uh, are have words of caution, and we, and we know that that market has to uh, stock market has to have pessimist has to climb a wall of worry. But when we look at market fundamentals, primarily earnings, earnings are very strong and expected to be strong through 2017. So we think you stay with stocks for now. We're probably uh, quite a bit more careful within the bond sector, staying away from those interest rate sensitive bond sectors. Well, let's take one sort of tech giant as an example, Apple. Uh, the earnings uh, that they recently posted, better than estimated. Uh, also looking into the future, saying that they think they're going to do better than analysts had previously uh, thought. Is Apple characteristic of the kind of company you want to own? It is. We saw iPhone sales come through uh, very strong in the most recent quarter. Uh, they're continuing really to perform well uh, with still a low P.E. relative to a lot of their peers. And when we look at the tax reform that may be coming, one of the primary uh, ingredients in that is a way for those big companies like Apple to repatriate dollars. And that will be good whether it comes in the form of uh, further investment or in financial engineering, stock buybacks, higher dividend payout. So how do you respond to people that say, gee, you know, David, you just, you're a momentum trader. You're, you're going mm -hmm. with the momentum. You're, mm -hmm. you're adding to the positions that are doing well. Uh, as you just said, eventually that's not going to work forever. Eventually it won't work forever. Uh, but it, then, then we look for, as tactical asset allocators, where do we want to be 
in the next market environment. You know, right now, if people who are Warren Buffett or Graham Dodd type investors that have looked at value because it's undervalued, that's simply been a value trap. So momentum has worked very well this year. We think it continues to work well, and it will take us to other sectors uh, as uh, as the market shifts. Well, is a company like Tesla, do you consider that to be a technology company, a uh, an automobile manufacturer, a solar company? How would you parse Tesla? All the above. Uh, it, you know, it's a consumer, you know, we'd put it in the consumer cyclical category as an auto manufacturer primarily, uh, but also you'll see it held in a lot of uh, tech funds, technology stock funds, because of the technology incorporated in the overall business model in their products, you know, what Elon Musk is all about. Uh, but it's a, it's a technology stock that, that quite, quite frankly concerns us quite a bit now, and that's because uh, we have this Model 3 production ramp that we see a lot of con- we have a lot of concerns with. A cash burn rate we were concerned about until um, uh, a couple of days ago when it was announced that uh, there would be another bond or a bond offering to raise another $1.5 billion. But, uh, you know, that's, that's a company we can look at not like Apple at a low P.E. that's making a lot of money. Tesla is a, a company with no P.E. They have no earnings. And it's a question of when and if they will ever be a profitable company. So we think owners of Tesla, we call it a story stock, and they've given Elon Musk and Tesla a pass on a lot of things because they believe in the future. But we think there's a lot of reality to set in in the next six to nine months for Tesla. Well, it certainly hasn't stopped the stock because uh, the shares are up more than 70 so far this year. Do you think that $1.5 billion bond offering that they're talking about, is that just an effort? They got to raise the money somehow, but they just don't feel they can dilute the current shareholders? Yeah, and it's it's a good time. If you're going to capital markets, a lot of companies do it. There's companies that are going uh, and issuing debt to buy back their stock because uh, capital is so cheap right now. So now's a good time to do it. Um, but they also, we think it's a good time for Tesla to do it because they've had the rollout of the Model 3. The press has been very good. It was really a superb rollout. But as they get in production and encounter some of those production problems, the next year's service problems, uh, it'll be a little tougher to go to the capital markets. Given that their cash burn rate, they're out of money in two, in two to three quarters. I think it was very wise for them to do that at this time. As far as this, uh, this effort on, on um, what you call secular uh, growth, health care. What what characterizes? Because I mean, healthcare is a broad, you know, a broad uh, section of the of the market. What particular areas of healthcare? Pharmaceuticals, uh, health insurance, health insurance, healthcare providers. Uh, we saw a lot of revenue generated for those companies with Obamacare, and we've seen uh, as the different uh, packages have been put forth, legislation proposals by the House and then the Senate. Uh, there, there within are uh, the factors that the healthcare providers can continue to do well. So, healthcare being a non-cyclical, typically non-cyclical, a a uh, a non-economically sensitive sector that has been uh, on a growth tear, and we think that uh, still a good place to be. What would you say is the one question that you get most often now from investors? When will the other shoe drop? When what do you, this, what do you will, tell will them? Will this bull market end? Uh, we know it. We, we know it will. 
right? Yeah. We know it will. And the further it goes, the more chances are, quite frankly, that it that that it ends badly. But uh, you know, I think that some of these these um, and, well, and people that have gone to cash or shorted this market uh, over the past year, two years, three years, four years, they, um, not, they have has, definitely not done well. Indeed, it has not. Yeah. It has not gone not worked well. out for them. Thank you very much, uh, David Kudla. He is the chief executive and the chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital Management, helping to manage two billion dollars, more than two billion dollars, in Grand Blanc, Michigan. Shares of Ralph Lauren and Michael Kors all moving higher today. Ralph Lauren up 8.5%. Michael Kors higher by 20%. And who says retail is dead? Well, maybe my next guest. Danielle DiMartino Booth is the founder of Money Strong, an economic consulting firm, former advisor, the Dallas Federal Reserve, and a Bloomberg profit. Bloomberg profits are professionals who offer actionable insights on markets, the economy, and monetary policy and the contributors may have a stake in the areas that they write about. Well, uh, Daniel DiMartino Booth, uh, do you have a stake in Ralph Lauren? Meaning, do you have things in your closet that maybe you're not going to throw away now? Well, I certainly have plenty of Jimmy Choo's. So uh, I, I, I personally stand behind and endorse the Michael Kors news. All right. Well, very good. So Michael Kors, $1.2 billion for uh, Jimmy Choo. What, what do you make of today's retail uh, report from Ralph Lauren and, and uh, Michael Kors? I mean, it's not terribly surprising. There's going to be, there will be continued pockets of, of loyalty out there. I'm a perfect represent, rep, representative thereof. That being said, I'm completely uh, price sensitive outside of my, my little spheres of loyalty, if you will. And I think that we continue to see that come out in the aggregate data, Pim. So this idea that people will pay whatever they, uh, whatever is being asked for the things they really want, but everything else is just sort of up for grabs. It's all price driven. It's kind of a, it, it, it's a lot of retail, if you will, has been commoditized and that commoditization has happened via Amazon, as, as we all know and, and talk about until we're blue in the face. Well, you've written a column that says back to school means more retail agony. Describe why you, you believe that to be so. You know, I, I think that, that we saw an acceleration of the decline in brick-and-mortar retailers over the holiday season. It, it surprised even the most pessimistic analysts when it came down to the trajectory of store closures. And because I think many retailers, of course, as we've seen today, not all, but because I think many retailers are in a vulnerable position, I think it's, it's feasible that we actually see some more bloodshed around the back-to-school season, which is the second most important time of the year for retailers after, after the holiday season. All right. And do we, is it worthwhile making a distinction between the retail, uh, the retail corporations that only sell online versus those that have, you know, substantial store locations? Because I think, for example, Michael Kors has over like 830 stores right now. You know, exactly. In fact, I was uh, I, I was in a mall recently uh, at gunpoint. My children had taken me to see an animated feature, and you know, out of the corner of my eyes, I noticed a Michael Kors store. Now, I, I don't go into malls if I don't have to, but you are right. Their footprint is enormous, and that will that will come back to haunt them at some point as more of the second and third tier malls begin to close down. Do you think that that's reflected in the Chinese trade numbers with the United States, uh, that trade with China uh, continues to be robust and indeed 
the sale of and demand of Chinese products continues to rise. You know, it, it, it does. I, I was fishing over the weekend in Maine with Leland Miller, who's the China Beige Book, uh, who, who runs the China Beige Book, and, and he gave me, you know, the, he, he, he always says, you, you use an eyedropper full of, of skepticism when you see these data. I'm not so sure that five months in a row uh, of a growing surplus in China is reflective as much of true underlying improvement uh, or, or Chinese politicians trying to make a statement to President Trump uh, about some of the hard talk that he has on, on trade. I just I don't know if we can parse this as being a true trend or, or being more uh, game theory at play because Trump continues to threaten trade wars. Expand on that, if you can, about the this potential for uh, the conversation really being political rather than economic? Well, again, you know, I don't think that anybody in the world, especially given what's going on in North Korea, wants to see the outbreak of a trade war. On the other hand, we saw uh, just last week that the Japanese have indeed moved forward with tariffs on, on importing beef. So I, it, it might be once From the United States? From the, and from other countries as well. Uh, so it, these are small steps, but, but we've not seen any backing down in terms of threats of, of, of tariffs on steel imports into the United States. And these things never tend to end well. And again, you know, it, it, there's been a lot of weakness out of the Chinese trade data. I would put more stock in it than I otherwise would. I do say it's more than just political, given the deeper disappointment that we saw overnight coming out of Germany and its trade numbers, followed by weakness the night before in its manufacturing industrial production figures. All right. Now, if we if we sort of combine that with what is happening to the U.S. consumer and how they're managing to pay for all of the products that come from these countries, maybe just to tell us more about that. Well, you know, what we have seen is extreme stickiness in services inflation in this country. And whenever we see that, in fact, a, a recent survey showed that parents are going to be spending more money on after-school activities, those are services, than they will be spending on products to get their kids ready for, for, for the back-to-school to season, which, which brings us back to my column from last week. But the more we see in terms of sticky service price inflation, the less wherewithal the average household has to spend on any goods. So you'll see that continued tug-of-war moving forward as household strains continue to, to grow. Of course, we saw uh, news out of Discover Financial last week before that, Capital One Financial, that we, we've seen credit card uh, uh, defaults continue to tick up. Well, and also re- revolving credit, which uh, obviously credit cards, you say is at a uh, record. Is at a record right now? Well, that's what Bloomberg reported last yeah. night. Yes. Uh, no, we, we, we have indeed, uh, indeed seen uh, that prior peak taken out. At the same time, though, the, the Fed's senior loan officer survey data tell us that, that, that standards are tightening. I, I have to I'm just going to sit back and and try and figure out how this dynamic is going to play out because it's apparent that households are reaching to their credit cards not to cover discretionary Ralph Lauren, Michael Kors type of spending, but rather to cover spending on necessities. If lenders are pulling back at the same time, tightening standards, you have to start to wonder if we're going to see that play out in an increase in mortgage defaults in a continued rise in automobile loan defaults. Well, you mentioned tightened standards. What about tightening interest rates? Do you believe that the increase in interest rates that is foretold by the Federal Reserve will have a, a, a dramatic effect? 
You know, I do. It's, it's interesting. We have, we, we have the, the ongoing battle between the Hawks and the Doves and Bullard overnight saying there's not another rate increase. I think that if the Fed manages to follow through on its theory of balance sheet uh, shrinking being on autopilot and a non-event for the markets, it wouldn't surprise me, Pim, if we were to see them follow that with a rate hike in December. And at some point, these these continued rate hikes, one on top of the other, will make a difference in conjunction with LIBOR going away for the average U.S. household. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth is the founder of Money Strong, former advisor at the Dallas Federal Reserve, a Bloomberg prophet. And you can follow her on Twitter at DiMartino Booth. She's also the author of Fed Up. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.